This talk was given by Patrick Yunin Kelly at the Zen Center of New York City. Yunin is a senior lay student in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation or find out more about the temple's retreats and residency programs, visit our website at zmm.org zcnyc. Thanks for listening. So I want to start with a short poem by uh, Uchiyama Roshi. This is called Samadhi on the Treasury of the Radiant Light. Though poor, never poor. Though sick, never sick. Though aging, never aging. Though dying, never dying. Reality prior to division. Herein lies unlimited depth. So uh, my name is Yunan. I'm a uh, lay student here in the order. I live here at the temple, actually. And uh, there's been, since we reopened, I don't know, early March, there's been a lot of new folks uh, coming, so I thought that I would try and go back to the beginning. Um, I try to keep it simple, too, which is hard for me. I like ornate, baroque, kind of complicated things, so we'll see how that goes. Um, but the, we in Zen practice, you 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 may well have heard the, the phrase "beginner's mind," which goes back to Dogen. Uh, but it's uh, it's sort of something that we um, cultivate and and strive for. The mind of the beginner is said to be uh, uh, fresh, open, receptive, not knowing. And so I, you know, I've, I, I notice I, sometimes I, I give beginning instruction, which uh, Tenfu did this morning. But whenever I do it, I always find that I, I learn something. You know, I've done it a number of times now, but I always find that I get something new from doing it. So, so this poem, as I said, is by uh, Kosho Uchiyama Roshi, who is a Japanese uh, Soto. Uh, teacher, priest. He uh, he was the abbot of a temple called Antaiji, which is on the the north coast of Japan, near the Sea of Japan. And he lived uh, throughout the 20th century, pretty much from 1912 to 1998. He was a student of a of a very well known uh, Soto teacher named uh, Koro Sawaki, uh, who was known for emphasizing the practice of as most sort of people do, shikantaza, but but really sort of rigorous, and that they would have session and they would pretty much not do anything else but shikantaza all day. And so he was the, the heir of Kurosawaki, and then he was also the uh, teacher of um, uh, Shohaku Akamura, who is a contemporary uh, Zen teacher who has a, a place, I think, in Indiana somewhere and has written a number of uh, what I think are really excellent commentaries on Dogen and just Zen practice. And so that's actually where I got this uh, poem from. And so let me just, I mentioned that he was a, Uchiyama was a Soto priest. Let me just 
in case you're not familiar with this, Soto is one of the uh, the main uh, schools of Japanese Zen. Zen goes back to China and back to India before that, and it also went into Vietnam and, and Korea. But along with Renzai and Obaku, so they're in really sort of like the heyday of, of uh, Chinese Zen during the Tang Dynasty and the um, 8th, 9th centuries, there were five houses of Zen, five schools. One of them was Soto or Caodong. Uh, another was Linji, uh, Renzai. And then there were three others, the Guiyang, Yunmen, and Fayan uh, schools, which later got sort of subsumed into Renzai or Linji. And uh, so... so the person that I, I think I mentioned already, if not, I will soon, um, who brought Zen from Soto Zen from China to Japan was a priest named Ehe Dogen um, in the uh, 13th century. And, and this particular lineage, uh, through our founder of this, uh, the Mountains and Rivers Order, was a, was a um, teacher named Daido Roshi, who died about 12 years ago. And he, he was a lineage holder in both um, Soto and Rinzai. So we, we do uh, both of those here. Soto, if you, if you want to paint it with a broad brush, Soto tends to be more um, uh, shikantaza, the practice of just sitting, of formless awareness. While uh, Rinzai tends to emphasize these uh, the koans, which you may have heard of, koan study, these short sort of anecdotes or stories. I mean, that's a little bit... Um, that characterization is maybe not entirely accurate, but it's it's a good place to start. So so back to the poem. So Uchiyama says, "Though poor, never poor; though sick, never sick; though aging, never aging; though dying, never dying." You know, he wrote this uh, poem towards the end of his life. He lived um, to be 86 or so. And, you know, if you look at his biography, he, he, he knew what he was talking about. Uh, Akamura said that, you know, although to his life he was never very rich, uh, he said his life, I'm sorry, he said his life was very rich, but it was a reality that he was financially very poor. Um, he lived with tuberculosis for most of his life, so he struggled with that for more than 50 years. He married in his early 20s uh, when he was a university student, and his wife, uh, he got tuberculosis from her and she died of it. And he married again, and then his second wife died while she was pregnant. After that, he decided to become a monk. And by the time he wrote uh, this poem, he was uh, facing his own death. Akamura says, he was often sick, and he was aging, and he was dying. That was the undeniable reality of his life. Yet he also said his life was really rich, because he lived together with the entire universe. He was never sick, he was never aging, and he was never dying.
I, I, I really love this poem. I think it's sort of a distillation of the, um, the, the Buddhist teachings, the Zen teachings. In the, um, in the traditional story of uh, Shakyamuni Buddha, uh, Shakyamuni was brought up in a very, um, he was, uh, in, I guess what you would call an aristocratic family. Uh, it was said that he was, there was a prophecy that he was going to be either a, a Chakravartin, a wheel-turning king, or a great sage. His parents wanted him, who were sort of the nobility of the area, wanted him to be a, a wheel-turning king. So they sheltered him and gave him, protected him from all the, the difficulties or suffering of the world in the hope that that would sort of get him onto that path. But it's said that at some point in his in his twenties, he he encountered what's called the four messengers. So at one point, he went outside of the palace and he saw a sick person, and he realized, I too am subject to illness. I too will become sick one day. Shortly after that, he saw an old person. He said, I he realized I too am subject to aging. I too will become old one day. And not long after that, he saw a corpse, and he realized, I too am subject to death. I too will die. And then finally he saw a religious mendicant, a seeker. And so he left his home and began to seek for answers to his questions. Why is there suffering in this world? Who am I? Eventually, he, uh, after many years and many different practices and, and actually very severe ascetic practices at one point, he, he cast that aside and, and uh, sat down under the, the Bodhi tree. And when he, uh, that morning he saw the, the morning star Venus, he said, wonderful, wonderful, I enter the way together with all beings and the great earth. And then he, after some time hesitating, he began to offer what he had seen to other people. And that's, that's what this tradition is. At one point, he was asked uh, what he taught, and he said, um, I teach suffering and the cessation of suffering. You know, it's 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 the it's the same rhythm of of that poem. Though aging, never aging; though dying, never dying. Suffering and the cessation of suffering. It's, it's sort of also a sort of a condensed version of you've perhaps heard of the Four Noble Truths, which was one of the earliest teachings of Shakyamuni. He taught that that one life is suffering, dukkha. Two, uh, suffering has a cause. Samadaya, that causes attachment to self. Because it has a cause, it has an end, nirodha. And that end is the Eightfold Path. It's a practice. Uh, Buddhism is it's sometimes viewed as... Um, you know, pessimistic or quietistic, perhaps even nihilistic, because of this 
you know, he starts with life is suffering. And it seems kind of grim, maybe. I don't think it is, actually. <laughs> my, I was talking to my, my brother not too long ago, and he was, he was kind of needling me. He said, come on, isn't Buddhism it's just gussied up nihilism? And he was kind of trying to get a rise out of me, but, but it was a real question, too. I said, I, I don't think so. I said, nihilism is sort of an inverted eternalism, a disappointed idealism. And that's not what the, the Buddha was teaching. That's not what we're practicing here. We're not trying to get rid of thoughts altogether. Um, Dogen says the Buddha way goes beyond being and non-being. You know, I mentioned that that sort of <laughs> what to call it maybe soundbite that the Buddha gave: suffering and the cessation of suffering. You know, I, I sometimes think he could have said, "I teach joy and the cause of joy." Um, and and I think ultimately it comes down to the same thing. But there's something about our human condition that we need to start with, most of us need to start with suffering. I mean, you think about it, um, to experience a sort of real joy, you have to be able to liberate the causes of suffering. And to be able to liberate the causes of suffering, you have to be able to see them. And so that's where the Buddha started. It's not, he's a very practical sort of person. It's not going to help if we start from way up in the clouds. We have to start from where we are. Usually we try not to look too closely at our suffering. I mean, I, I, you know, my, I feel like in some ways my whole uh, course of you know, practice has been trying not to look at my suffering in more and more subtle ways, perhaps. It's like we have this funny idea, if we just don't look at it, it's not real. But in Zazen, we, we study our suffering. That's what Zazen is. And suffering, that's an English translation of the word uh, that I, I mentioned, dukkha. It, 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 it means what we think of as acute sort of distress, pain. But it also means, the Buddha, when the Buddha used it, it used also sort of sublime states of meditative bliss. But because these states were conditioned, because they arise in accordance with conditions, when conditions are no longer present, these states pass away too. So they're not fundamentally reliable. So, so the Buddha, when he spoke of suffering, it's, it's perhaps broader than the usual uh, way that we translate it here. You could also say dis-ease, or some people say stress. So in Zazen, we study our, our uh, restlessness, our discomfort, our dis-ease. And the way we study it, as, as Tenfo mentioned to you this morning, see the thought, acknowledge it, let it go, and come back to counting the breath, or to your practice, whatever that is. See it, let it go, and come back to the practice. Our usual tendency, when something comes up, is to either indulge it if we like it, or to repress it if we don't like it, to attack it. But in Zazen, we just let it be. We don't run with it, and we don't push it away. We just 
practice intimacy with it, make friends with it. And it's, it's really, this is so, goes against the grain of, of not just, I think, this, our culture, it means sort of this, I mean, there are many cultures, but, but the sort of mainstream culture. And, and, a, and a, even, it goes against our sort of human tendency. And when we, when we begin, begin to look closely, we see that, that we suffer and that other people suffer too that life suffers. You know, to, just to have a human body is to be exposed to suffering. I mean, either, either potentially we have to be on guard against it, or in fact, you know, hunger, thirst, cold. We need certain conditions to be able to thrive. Relationship with other people, but we're subject to these and then we experience things in our life, you know, the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. The Buddha said, not getting what we want and getting what we don't want. And so even when we have very favorable conditions, we have to be on our guard. Those might change. Someone else may come up and try and grab them from us. Or things just may shift. Things just shift. It's not even malicious. And then inevitably, as the Buddha realized, there's old age, sickness, and death. I mean, if we're lucky enough to get old, there's no guarantee of that even. And, and as I said, I don't think this is, it may sound at first sort of grim or morbid. I don't think it is. This is just the reality of having a human form. You know, it's like, I think from the, from the Buddhist perspective, it's just like saying under atmospheric conditions, water freezes at 32 degrees Fahrenheit. It's just the way things are. In the, in the traditional Buddhist cosmology, there's um, six realms of existence. There's a hell realm, hungry ghost or preta realm, animal realm, human realm, the realm of the asuras or fighting gods, and the divine realm. And these are all, this is just like a, a geography of samsara, of cyclic existence. Traditionally, it was probably understood fairly literally, but if that's not your cup of tea, you can think of them as uh, just psychological states, states of mind. You know, the, the different realms, they're, they're, they're uh, really associated with different, um, different emotions, different uh, kleshas, afflictive emotions. So the hell realm is aggression or hatred. The hungry ghost realm is greed, craving. The animal realm is ignorance. These are the three poisons, greed, anger, and ignorance. Sometimes, sometimes people add to more pride and envy. So envy is the realm of the fighting gods, and pride is the god realm. And, and in the human realm, we're sort of, we don't quite fit into any of those, although we experience all of them. We cycle through all of them. It's sort of like a, a Goldilocks realm. It's not too miserable, and it's not too pleasurable. And, and because of that, um, it's said that, that we have the most favorable chance of liberation from the human realm. Um, 
you know, the gods are just drunk on pleasure and self-satisfaction. I mean, you can even see this if you look at different people in the human realm. Some people seem to inhabit more of the god realm. Some people seem to inhabit more of a hell realm because of their whatever circumstances they find themselves in. And in the lower realms, people are, are beings are, are too consumed with rage or craving to be able to practice for the most part. So we're very fortunate. It's funny, though, in a big part of the human realm seems to be our desire to escape the human realm for something better. You know, we don't have a lot of patience with, with ordinary, what we think of as the ordinary life. We want things to be more definitive. I, I recently found a story by uh, Mel Weitzman, who was a, a teacher in the Suzuki Roshi lineage, who, who, who recently died. He was telling a story about uh, Sishin uh, when, back when Suzuki Roshi was around. Session is one of these long uh, meditative retreats that we do. It's, it's usually a week, and we're, we're in uh, silence the whole time. We just do zazen all day, basically. So after a couple of days, you know, this starts to bring stuff up, you know, sort of stuff from the mind, uh, um, your causes of suffering, emo- difficult emotions, um, neuroses, if you want to call them that appear very vividly and it's it can get it can get pretty rough sometimes <laughs> um and a couple days in while everyone was struggling with this stuff uh suzuki roshi gave a talk and he started and he said you know he started the problems you're experiencing now and everyone thought he was going to say are impermanent you know this too will pass he said the problems you're experiencing now will continue for the rest of your life Daido, Daido Roshi used to speak of, of the whole catastrophe of our human life. We can try to ignore it, and I think most of us do, but that just causes more suffering. The, uh, the, the philosopher and activist uh, Cornel West says, um, I found this quote from him, to be human in time and space is to be in the mess. And the, the teachings keep pointing us back to this human mess. You know, they keep pointing out, you know, you don't need another circumstance, another personality, another state of mind to practice. This circumstance, this difficult personality that you have, this mind state that you may not want is the gateway to liberation right here, whatever it is. You know, it's not that we should just sort of roll over in the face of adverse conditions or, you know, yield to injustice or, or, or just indulge our shortcomings. That's not what it's saying. But we can practice them. And we have to start from right here, not from what our opinions, our, our conditioned views are. We need to start from reality. Last week, Hojin Sensei, during her talk, she said something, I, I don't remember exactly the words, but 
in the spirit of it's, it's through this body and mind that we attain liberation. It's because of this body and mind that we can practice. Because of our difficulties, because of our disappointments, our limitations, our insecurities, our self-doubt. Those sick, never sick. But you can only enter never sick through sickness. You can only enter cessation of suffering through suffering. We should appreciate our delusions because it's, it's actually not possible to awaken without them. And not just, again, not indulge them, but appreciate them and practice them. In the Avatamsaka Sutra it says, why should we cherish all deluded sentient beings? Because deluded sentient beings are the roots of the tree of awakening. Buddhas and bodhisattvas are the flowers and the fruits. Compassion is the water for the roots. Dado used to speak of ascending the mountain training and descending the mountain training. Ascending the mountain is cultivating samadhi, single-pointedness of mind, attaining direct insight into the emptiness of all phenomena, shunyata, the luminous emptiness of everything. When you reach the top of the mountain, the view is vast and clear, but you can't stay there. He used to say, when you get to the top of the mountain, you keep going right down the other side into the marketplace. This morning we chanted, to encounter the absolute is not yet enlightenment. Into the busy world of this and that, good and bad, right and wrong, noisy subways, difficult bosses, money troubles, sore knees. I think ascending the mountain is uh, those sick, never sick. But you could you could turn it around as well, say, though never sick, sick, though never dying, dying. And this is, I think, really the heart of the, the path of the bodhisattva, um, one who vows to enter the difficulty of the world for the benefit of beings. Joyfully getting down into the mud in the human mess. Dogen says, to accept a human body and to give up the human body are both acts of giving. On the chalkboard just the other day, um, we have a uh, sort of chalkboard at the top of the stairs, and every now and then Hojum will write something on there, um, some quote or, or teaching. And a little while ago, uh, there was a, a teaching on there that said, every day is a good day. And I, I, I think this is from uh, Master Yunmen, whose name means Gate of the Clouds. It's wonderful. And Master Yunmen said, every day is a good day. You know, it's a, it's a nice way of putting it. It's, it's a, as I understand it, it's a, it, but it's, it's also pretty subtle, you know. It's easy to say that when things are going our way, but what about when they're not? I mean, I, I don't think this is a kind of um, Hallmark card kind of uh, 
sentiment here that he's talking about. I mean, consider for, just think, consider some time when you had a really difficult day. You know, I don't know, maybe you, you lost a job or failed an exam or a relationship ended or you lost someone that, that was dear to you. How is that a good day? But that's what he's saying. I mean, you could say, well, you know, at least I have my health. At least I have my life. But I don't think he's saying that either. You know, he, he didn't say every day could be worse. <laughs> <laughs> he's saying every day is a good day. I think he's saying all of life is good. Life in heaven is good. Life in hell is good. It's easy to say this. It's not very easy to live it. That's why we have a practice. Because inevitably we fall short, but we can inevitably practice. That's why we have a sangha, a community of practitioners. It's why we have teachers to help point us in the right direction. I was thinking about how I, how I wanted to, to wrap this up, and I, you know, sometimes when I give a talk, I, something comes back to me. When, when, when people are a, a shuso, it's this ceremony where they become a, a senior student and they, they give their first public talk. Some of it is very extemporaneous and, and improvised. No one knows what's going to happen, but part of it is, is scripted too. And at the end of it all, the, the shuso, says, um, uh, being immature in Zen training, I was not expecting to be appointed chief disciple. I feel as if a crime has committed, has been committed and there was nowhere for me to hide. I hope there's enough water in the Asopus for you to wash my words out of your ears. The Asopus is the river up by the monastery. Well, maybe that's a bit extreme, but. <laughs> but if I were to say, if, if I were to, to say, to recommend uh, anything that you were to, to take away from this, I would, I would say, I would suggest, uh, see the thought, let it go, and come back to the practice, to counting the breath. And then, I, I can't resist, uh, Dido, Dido used to say, one of my favorite teachings of his is, all the way to heaven is heaven itself. Thank you for listening. To find out more about the Zen Center of New York City's programs, retreats and residency, please visit our website at zmm.org slash zcnyc.